0: After surviving kidney cancer in 2002, Trish Heitz was determined to learn all there was on how we contribute to creating disease in our bodies. She wrote her book, Daydreams Come True, a self-coaching workbook to share with others about the lessons she has learned so they too can live a life of thriving. And of course I love that last word thriving. (laughs) So Trish, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. If you could take us back to the very beginning of your journey, as I said, before I hit record, it's not very often I get to interview a kidney cancer survivor. So I really want to know sort of what was the beginning? What symptoms did you have and take us back there?
1: Well, probably the reason why you haven't interviewed as many kidney cancer survivors is there aren't as many kidney cancer survivors because it's um, a silent disease in that, uh, similar to pancreatic cancer, you usually don't find out that you have it until after you have symptoms and by the time you have symptoms, it's usually metastasized someplace else because as you can imagine, everything goes through the kidney. What happened to me was, um, I think, a little miraculous. Uh, I just went for my annual gynecological appointment, and my my gynecologist was just feeling around my abdomen. And when he got to the right side of my abdomen, he said, ooh, what's that? And I thought, I don't know, I, I don't feel anything. And he made me feel it, and it just felt like bumpy, squishy belly. I didn't feel anything unusual and he said no there's something there he said I'm sending you for an MRI and I really didn't think much of it I guess I was in denial but I had just gotten back from traveling and I thought maybe I was constipated or something so I didn't really think anything of it so I went for the MRI the next day and then the day after that he had me back in his office and as I'm sitting there in his office he says to me you have a mass on your kidney and I almost fell off the chair I said how could that be I feel fine and he said, well, you know, he told me about the, he said maybe we've caught it early if you don't have any symptoms. So he got me in to see um, a very highly regarded urologist in the area, and, um, but I had to wait about a week and a half uh, to get in to see that doctor. So of course that week and a half went on for years uh, because I didn't know what was gonna happen after that. When the uh, urologist showed me the mass on my kidney through the uh, MRI film, I just couldn't believe that that was in my body. It was the your kidney is about the size of your fist, and this picture of my kidney was the size of a football. Uh, we did the surgery, then I was home recuperating and waiting for the results of the biopsy because, of course, they took they wanted to biopsy the kidney. They took uh, tissue from all surrounding lymph areas and surrounding tissue, etc. So the idea was we don't know what our course of treatment is going to be until we find out if. The cancer cells have traveled outside of the kidney. While I was home uh, recuperating and waiting for the results of that, someone had given me a book called You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. That was life changing for me because from the moment I was told that I had this disease, I just kept thinking, I have two young children, Uh, I can't die. I can't leave my children, I can't leave my family. So you were in your mid-forties, so I mean fairly young. Really. Yes, and my children were young. I just kept praying every day, help me see what I need to see and know what I need to know. I just, my intuition told me that there was something about this that was, um, that I needed to know. So when I read that book, I guess because I was prepping my subconscious brain, I was prepping myself to know the answer. The answer, when I got to the part in the book that says, why do you need to have this disease? I just had like a lightning bolt of go off in my head that I realized that I had gone back. I had grown up in a very dysfunctional alcoholic household. Um, there was a lot of volatility, there was some abuse, there was lots of anger left over from all of those years and then lots of um, relationship issues, difficulties, etc. So there was a lot of um, negative energy I was holding in my body. and rage and anger is held in that abdomen area. And so I realized, oh my gosh, I had contributed to this by what I, by the uh, negative emotions I I was holding in my body. I just was blown away by that. So I thought, what if I loved myself? What if I just really lived life positively and I really loved myself? Like, if I could do that because I loathed myself, what could I do if I loved myself? So that really set me off on the journey of finding out how we contribute to disease in our body through our emotions. So you have the surgery,
0: they remove the tumor, they do a biopsy of the tumor, you're waiting for the results. What were the results and what were next steps? Did you need any more treatment outside of surgery? They removed the entire kidney.
1: Whoa! Really? Yes. They had to remove the entire kidney. It was um, much too large of a tumor. And then they biopsied that in the tissue. And what they found was, that was kind of the miraculous part, is that when the tumor started growing on that right kidney, it shut down and my left kidney took over. So none of those cancer cells were able to move through that diseased kidney and carry them into my body. The left kidney took over and and that was like, whoa. This was a huge wake-up call for me. It is amazing. It was a huge wake-up call for me. I thought, that's so miraculous that that happened. I feel like this is a life-changing event for me. With kidney cancer, they don't treat it with radiation. They don't treat it with chemo. They treat it with um, interleukin and interferon. They pump up your immune system to fight the cancer cells.
0: Uh, immunotherapy, for people who may not know what that is. Yeah. So tell us
1: more. When they found that the kidney had shut down and they, d- they found zero uh, proof that the cancer cells had moved out of that kidney. There was no trace of it in the lymph nodes. There was no trace of it in any surrounding tissue. So they said, at this moment in time, we are not going to treat you because we see no proof that it has gone anywhere. So from that time on, my treatment, I guess you could say, was to just come back every year. I guess the next stop on the Cancer Express with kidney cancer is your lungs so? Every year I had to go for a chest X-ray, and then of course they would always uh, recheck the left kidney to make sure that it was operating efficiently, and that's been my treatment for the last well 18 years. Because when I was about five years past this episode, the doc I said to the doctor, "Ooh, I'm five years out. Like that's good, right? Like I think that you know." Can we say that, you know, I'm fairly safe? And he said, no. Uh, with kidney cancer, because we don't know if any of those cancer cells did travel out and are just lying dormant someplace in your body, we really are going to be checking you for the rest of your life because that, any dormant cells could be triggered at any time. So that was a little disappointing and a little scary, but I thought, well, I'm changing my life so i choose not to allow any of those dormant cells to do anything they're going to stay there and they're going to die then two years ago uh, when i was 18 years post-surgery my doctor said to me well i think we can use the word cure now and i was like what 18 years 18 years 18 years later i said you're using (sighs) the c word like really (laughs) the good c word (laughs) the good c word (laughs) i said Oh my gosh, I said, all those years ago you told me. He said, well, you know, things have advanced since then. And for someone to be this far out and not have any reoccurrence, he said, I feel about 99% sure that I feel safe with using the word cure. So that was a real confirmation to me that I had healed all the negativity in my body that had contributed to this disease. I was just thrilled.
0: What were the repercussions of only having one kidney? I mean, was there anything in your diet, for example, or nutrition you had to change because now you only have one kidney? I
1: started eating much more organic. I went to a naturopathic doctor so I could make sure that I was living a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, mind and body because that's what a naturopathic does. And I went to him for mm, maybe about a year and a half, two years, and he actually said after a year and a half, two years, like, I don't think you need to come back anymore. I think you're doing really well. The first thing he told me to cut out was coffee because he said the chemicals that they use to process coffee are very bad for you. So get rid of coffee, which coffee, my coffee in the morning.
0: So get rid of coffee altogether
1: get rid of coffee altogether.
0: That's fascinating because so many studies have shown now that coffee is actually good for your liver. I don't know about the kidneys, but it's good for your liver.
1: And so that's kind of interesting. That was so many years ago, there really wasn't any organic coffee out there, or at least there wasn't any that I was familiar with or that he could recommend. So I switched, there was organic tea, so I switched to organic tea. It's just in probably the last year that someone um, offered me. It just smells so good when it's being made, you know. And someone had offered me a cup and said, it's organic. And I tasted it and I thought, oh, this is really good. So I felt safe to kind of go back into the coffee world with an organic coffee. As far as all of the other dietary restrictions, I just was very careful about chemicals. I read everything before I took it. You know, when people said, oh, I'm taking this supplement or I'm taking that supplement, and I thought, I'm not taking anything. I don't need to take any supplements. So I wouldn't say it was a strict organic diet, but I was, um, I switched to eating more fruits, vegetables, I gave up beef, only because I was never a a huge fan of beef to begin with, but I thought, you know, uh, I'd rather uh, stick with lean uh, fish, chicken, vegetables, and fruit.
0: Did you need to, or did you choose to increase your hydration at all, just considering what the function of the kidneys
1: is? Oh, yes. So I was, and still am, a voracious reader. Now I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I walk a lot. Um, I love to walk, and that was part of my um, getting back my strength after uh, the kidney surgery is I just walked and walked, and I would listen to, back then it was the CD player in the... um, in the <laughs> Walkman kind of thing, you know. Yes. And I listened. T- I
0: had one. I know yes. what you mean.
1: <laughs> and I listened to every mind, body, wellness CD or audio that I could get a- and or read. And one of the books I read was, um, You're Not Sick, You're Just Thirsty. And that was really amazing. The um, There's a physician that wrote this book about all the maladies that we suffer through our body that are caused by unknowing dehydration, because in that book he said, everyone, you know, talks about drinking eight ounces of water, or excuse me, 64 ounces of water a day, eight, eight ounces, and he said it's really based on half your body weight in ounces of water, so that really upped my hydration, and that's when I really became a big um, water drinker.
0: I drink water all the time, constantly, and I'm used to it. But part of it might be because I have sort of permanent dry mouth from having thyroid disease in my 20s. And so there was one point in time where my doctor said to me, you actually need to cut back oh, on the water really? just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, oh. because I just drink it without thinking. Oh. Like I can drink 64 ounces before oh, noon. My goodness. I mean, wow. I want to get back to something you talked about that I I found interesting and I know it can be a little controversial for some people is this idea of emotions residing in our body. And in Chinese medicine, um, they sort of have five organs that that carry our emotions. And for the heart, it's where hatred um, resides, if you have any hatred. In the lungs, it's grief. And I know for me, that's 100% true. In the liver, it's anger, like you indicated. And then in the kidneys and spleen, one is worry and one is fear. And I can't remember which is which, but I think the kidneys are fear. So I think it's really interesting that you talked about the way you grew up. And if you grow up in a home like that, and I grew up in a a similar type situation, you're always sort of fearful in the back of your mind, even if you don't realize it. You know, there's there's a fear that resides there. So what did you do in addition to listening to audiobooks? What did you do to work through those emotions?
1: In just reading all of the books, I became a big customer on Hay House. They have so many wellness books, um, especially after that um, major aha moment I have. And there's so many authors out there who have um, expanded on what you said about um where we carry emotions, where we store those emotions are if we don't process them and we don't have closure on them, we hold on to them and then they are re-triggered all the time. So like you said, um when you grow up in a household like that, you're constant like you said, you don't realize but you're living on adrenaline all the time because you really are always in waiting to see when the next shoe is gonna drop. So there's, yes,
0: yes, yes that's exactly how I would describe yes. it. Yes. yes, yes,
1: so you're always on the edge of that, um, like, uh, how can I say, it? this adrenaline is constantly at the surface and it just takes, it's, it's like on call. I started to, I tried to learn how to meditate, I wasn't very good at it in the beginning, but I just started, um, just rethinking uh, what my emotions meant, like what was behind that? If I didn't like myself, why was that? So I started doing things like asking myself if the opinions I had about myself, the judgments I had about myself, was that really true? Because I know that when you have negative opinions about yourself, there's always opportunities that are presented to you to show you that that's not true, but when you don't believe them, you just kind of poo-poo them. So what came back for me was all the times when people had said lovely things about me, and I thought, okay, over here I have people saying that I'm X, Y, and Z, which are good things, but then I'm saying, when people would say those things about me, I'd think, They don't know what they're talking about. They really don't know me. I'm really not that person. I'm really not that good. And so when I was reexamining my um, belief, because really it comes down to what you believe about yourself, and the beliefs are formed in early childhood based on an immature child's brain so if something happens especially as a child you're trying to figure out how you fit in this world all around you and so when something happens it always comes back to but what so okay so this happened what does that mean about me because we're trying to decipher everything in the world put everything in a file put everything, label everything so that we can protect ourselves, so that we, you know, know what's familiar, what's comfortable, what's dangerous, etc. And in a a childlike mind, when you don't hear positive affirmations, when you hear things like, oh, you must be just stupid or you must be, you know, or things like that, you of course believe that that's true, Though that must be who I really am. And then you carry that with you into adulthood, and we never go back and reexamine those childhood perceptions that were formed with an immature brain and ask ourselves, is that really true? I think the best analogy for that story is when I do my classes, I talk about the story of the red door. There's two little boys who live next door to each other. So there's Bobby and there's Danny. And Danny lives in a house with a red door. Bobby lives next door and Bobby always goes over to Danny's house with the red door because Danny has better toys and he has a bigger playroom and it's just more fun to go to Danny's house. So every day, Bobby always goes over to Danny's house, knocks on the red door, the mom lets him in, he plays. One day, Bobby goes over to Danny's house and knocks on the red door. The mom was trying on a costume for a Halloween party and had a scary monster mask and outfit on. So when she opened the door, what Bobby saw was a scary monster. So he immediately ran away, he was so scared, ran away. Of course, she went back to console him and take off the mask and make him realize that this was just her in a costume, etc. But from that moment in time, Bobby associated in his brain, red is bad. He went on to like expand that, which is what we do and say, oh, I don't like red toys. I don't like to wear red shirts, Mom. I don't like the color red. When he would play with crayons, he never, ever used the color red. He grew up to be an adult who wouldn't wear red, who um, had an opportunity to buy a really great red car. He said, there's something about this car, I just don't like it. Then he's married and he and his wife are looking for a house and this house happens to have a red door but it's in the perfect neighborhood at the perfect price and it's everything they want in a house. And Bobby says, I don't know what it is, but I just don't like this house. We can't buy this house. There's something about this house. I just can't put my finger on it, but I don't like it. And so all of us have a red door. If Bobby had gone back to ask himself, why don't I like the red door? All the answers to that are inner subconscious we know why we don't like or why we believe whatever we believe we know that most people however a don't go back to revisit those beliefs or b some of them are too scary to look at and they don't want to go back there that's an innocuous example you know many people like us growing up in a difficult um childhood household have more intense red doors because there was truly fearful things going on. But all of us have red doors. So I started to really revisit all my beliefs. Where did that come from? Why do I feel that? Is that true? That was the big question. I would go back to, as I said before, when people would say nice things about me. And I remember even with the kidney cancer, when friends of my husband had sent a card and said that when I was still waiting for the biopsy results to come back, they sent a card and they said, we went to the shrine of Padre Pio to say a prayer for you, which I found out was kind of a long distance for them to drive to go do that. And I started crying. I said, why did they do that? I don't deserve that. That actually came out of my mouth. And so that was what my belief was. I didn't deserve to have nice things. I didn't deserve to have good things. I was a flawed person. So I had to go back and really question all of my beliefs, is this true, is this true, is this true? And little by little, I started thinking, I don't think that's true because I know that I'm bright, I know that I'm creative, and I started really looking at my gifts. Like what is the best of me? And when I started to really realize what was the best of me, I realized that all of my beliefs were complete misperceptions. And so then I started to really embrace the authentic me. I and so many people were born into this world as babies, as just big balls of love, possibility, potential. And then we start having these red door moments. And so what we do is we change to fit into the culture or the environment we're in. A, either to survive or B, to be approved. And we completely let go of who we authentically are so we can become what we think we need to be. And I realized that that was my whole life. So that was how I embraced my authentic self.
0: Trish, I wanna circle back to that time. Do your kids remember you said they were really young Um, And also, what was your worst moment during that time?
1: Um, My daughter was 13. My son was only six. Um, I knew I had to tell my daughter what was going on because she was old enough and smart enough to know something's going on. So I sat down and I told her and I said, it's all going to be okay. My son was only six. We didn't tell him anything because I didn't want him to be afraid. We just said, oh, mommy just has to go to hospital for a little bit, but she'll be home. When I ask about him now that he's grown, and I ask about, he's like, I really, I don't remember much about that. So I'm glad that he didn't have any fear. He didn't know what was going on. And my daughter, once she saw that I was embracing hope and potential and positivity, she immediately grabbed onto it and she just kept saying, No, this is all gonna be good mom, I know it is, I know. And she was one of my best cheerleaders. You know, they just, she'll say to this day, mom, that was just so random that that happened to you.
0: <laughs> what was your uh, worst moment in all that? Was it telling your daughter?
1: My worst moment was telling, well, I told my daughter and my husband at the same time. When I was diagnosed at the doctor's office, I was alone. It didn't occur to me to bring anyone with me because I really didn't, I guess I was in denial. I mean, no doctor sends you for an MRI and has you come back in 24 hours if there's nothing wrong. Um, that's, I'm glad you
0: said it, and that's true.
1: <laughs> so I chose yeah, to be in denial. Yeah, when they move really
0: fast, something's, you did, but when they move fast, something's really wrong. So.
1: Exactly. But I chose to be in denial, so that's why it was so shocking to me when he said that. And I think the worst moment was leaving the doctor's office and sitting in my car. I started crying and I thought, I don't know what to do next. I have to tell my parents. I have to tell my husband and my daughter. I'm not going to tell my son. I just cried. I sat there for I don't know how long and just cried. And I thought, I have to get a hold of myself before I go home to my family. So I went to my parents' house. And my mother wasn't home, but my father was. And my poor father did not know what to do for me. He was just so befuddled. He just kept saying, it's gonna be all right, it's gonna be all right, it's gonna be all right. I said, I just need to be here for a while and finish my crying. I need to process this and just get all of this, I don't know what to do next feeling, allow myself to be upset and get through it so that I can be strong for my family because I know that if I break down when I talk to my family they will be more upset. So I stayed there for I don't know how long, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever. Had some tea with my father and when I felt like I was strong enough to repeat the story without getting upset then I went home. I called my husband and my daughter into one of the bedrooms and closed the door so my son wouldn't hear and he was busy playing video games so then I told them
0: what's one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning
1: I wish I had known how life-changing this was going to be I wish I had known that that was the ending of who I was and the beginning of who Mm. I was becoming oh that's so well said if I had known that back then I probably would have progressed into healing quicker because there would be no resistance, because it's very difficult to let go of the things that you're so afraid of. It took a while to be able to let go of those fears and say that's not true, that's not really true about who I am, that's not true about what's going to happen next, there is no more shoes to drop, it is all going to be fine because I see what I need to see now. So I think that I would've progressed um, faster in my healing, but everything is what it is. And it's supposed to be what it, the way that it processes.
0: And Trish, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and
1: why? Well, I think that most people don't put your mindset in the same category as healthy. When people think of health, they think of their body, but your mind is in charge. What happens up here always will trigger something in your body, whether it's joy or anger or sadness or grief. Everything that happens up here, something is produced in your body. In our Western medicine culture, we don't get that yet. If I could change health care, I would like everybody to, if and when someone is feeling ill, that we do a belief check first let's see what you believe about yourself that's contributing to this because the reality is and i've seen this over and over if we don't fix the belief that contributed negative energy to this in your body then it's probably going to show up as some other kind of disease or some other kind of malady within your body because if you don't fix where it came from it's just like putting a band-aid on the problem I would say that's in the top three answers I get to that
0: question now. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire question? I am. Okay, here we go <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Peaceful. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: It is um, by Sarah. Mm, about the angels oh Sarah McLachlan yes. yes I love that song I think it is called angels. angels yes yeah oh I want that plate at my funeral it's so beautiful
0: what about the last meal you want to
1: eat pizza with everything on it <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the last person or people you will see
1: well of course my family my husband and my two children for sure
0: and the last words you will speak I love you and aside from Cancer You, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell us also how people can get in touch with you.
1: So any resource for anyone with cancer, I would highly recommend that they read everything they can about how your mind contributes to illness in your body and really understand how it contributes to the disease. The first thing it will do is help you feel like you're a little bit more in control. And the second thing is it will help you with the disease. And as far as how to get a hold of me, my website is patriciaheights.com. I do workshops, I do classes, I do retreats, I do speaking engagements. So all of that information is on my website. If I can help inspire anyone to visit their belief system, and ask themselves the same questions I did to find out what is really your gifts and what are your false perceptions. I would highly recommend that.
0: Trish, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And we will, will of course, put your website in the show notes.
1: Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure.